Grab your Bibles, God's Word, and turn your Bibles to James chapter 5, as we will conclude our series today, which was entitled Developing a Mature Faith. James chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. We know that in verses 17 through 12, James was telling us about our need and our call to be patient during times of suffering. Now James, as he is concluding this book, is telling us a, another key component that is going to help us to suffer, to persevere in the faith, and to do it well. Today he is dealing with the issue of prayer. Throughout the book, he has not mentioned prayer, but he concludes with prayer. And in the verses that we're going to read, in verses 13 through 18, prayer is mentioned in every single verse. This is no mistake. James has not just decided to talk, not to talk about prayer this whole book. I believe that he is, Lee has led us up to this point. James was, as an apostle, was given a nickname. And his nickname was the apostle with camel knees. Because he spent so much time on his knees. They said that his knees began to be shaped and to look like camel needs. So James has led us up as he has talked about suffering throughout the book. Remember in James chapter 1, he starts off talking about suffering. And throughout the whole book, he's writing in the context of, of Christian suffering. And he's led us up to this point, to prayer. It's not by mistake. It's not random. It's what he's been leading us up to this whole time, prayer, the importance of prayer. Horns of prayer. Today's text will help motivate us, help motivate you, help motivate me to depend on the ministry of prayer for personal comfort and for the restoration of others. James chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth 
and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Today we want to tag this text, how the prayer of the righteous makes a difference. How the prayer of the righteous makes a difference. Let us pray. Gracious Father, precious Lord, desperate for you. We are desperate for you. Please speak. Please, Lord. We beg you, Father God, to speak. Even now. In Jesus' name. Amen. How the prayer of the righteous makes a difference. In his fascinating and helpful book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller tells a captivating story about the day his daughter experienced spiritual weakness and almost gave up on the ministry of prayer. Paul Miller and some of his family members were away on a camping trip. And in the midst of the camping trip, he went back to his minivan. And as he was walking back to his Dodge Caravan, he saw his young daughter, Ashley, standing in front of the van. She was tense. She was discouraged. She was weeping. And like any father, he goes up to her and he asks her, he says, sweetie, what's wrong? What's the problem? To which she lifted her head up and she says, Dad, I lost my contact lens. At that moment, they began to search frantically on the floor. There was a million little crevices in which the lens could have failed. They began to push around leaves. And, and after not finding it, he lifted his head and he touched his daughter. He says, Ashley, let's pray. To which Ashley frantically responded, for what? Dad, why should we pray? I pray that the Lord would help Kim to speak, and he hasn't answered that prayer yet. Kim. Kim is Ashley's younger sister who was born with autism who has some serious motor issues that has caused her to be mute. Kim used to go to a speech therapist. In fact, for five years she went. And the speech therapist and the doctors could not figure out why she was unable to talk. This family had constantly prayed that the Lord would heal her, that the Lord would allow her to speak. Ashley was frustrated. She said, prayer is not making a difference in her life. Why would it make a difference now? Paul is in a serious situation, a great ordeal. If he prays and they don't find the contact lens, Ashley's faithlessness and discouragement can be cemented. What should he do? Paul, like any true minister of the gospel, like any true Christian 
like any true elder, true righteous person, bows his head and desperately prays in faith, Lord, help us to find this lens. As they open up their eyes, Paul says they look down at the floor and the first leaf that they, they looked at had the contact lens on it. That day, prayer made a world of difference. That day, the prayer of the righteous availeth much. That day, Ashley was strengthened in her weak faith, received encouragement. Have you ever found yourself like Ashley? Spiritually weak? Questioning the genuineness of your faith or even God's faithfulness to you because you have not received an answered prayer? Or perhaps because the weight of your sin, the weight of your suffering, the weight of your tribulation has, has led you to a point of cynicism, of, of pessimism, of, of doubt? Have you ever been there? This text, this text that we have before us tells us exactly what to do in times like that. It tells us the the importance of the ministry of prayer. And I want you to listen to me closely and know that through this text, the Holy Spirit is speaking to, to your heart and reminding you that God delights in the prayers of the righteous and that he has ordained our prayers to make a difference. It's ordained to make a difference. A key, key verse in this text that I want to jump down to and I want to point out and then we're going to go through this is found in verse 16. Look at the latter part of verse 16. James says, The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. This is what James is building his his whole argument on. This is what he's focusing on. This is the key The key part of this this part of the text, the prayer of the righteous person has great power. The King James prayer, the fervent, effectual prayer of the righteous availeth much. Now, who's the righteous person? Who's the righteous person? We can read this text and we can say the righteous person. Well, a lot of times I, I don't pray and don't have confidence in my prayer life because I'm not righteous. The righteous person is anyone who treasures Christ above all. The righteous person is is anyone who has been saved by grace through faith. You are the righteous person. Put your name in there. The prayer of Nuke Nuke availeth much. It has great power. The prayer of Funny Fred Availeth much, makes a difference. It is effective. The person who treasures Christ, the person who is treasured by Christ, the person who has been adopted into the family of God is righteous. How in the world are we righteous? We are righteous not by our own works. We are righteous as a result of us accepting the sacrifice of Christ. 
accepting and putting our faith in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And when we accept the righteousness of faith, the life of faith, God imputes, he puts Christ's righteousness on us. When he looks at us, he doesn't see our our faults or our mistakes, but rather he sees his son and his son's blood. His son was transferred his life for ours, which became our substitute. Prayer of the righteous has great power. All throughout this Christmas season, we're going to see car companies. We're going to see them talk about their cars on television. We're going to see them boast about how many, how much horsepower it has. All throughout history, specifically uh, in, the, in the mid part of the last century, we begin to hear countries boast about their power. Boast about atomic power. James tells us that the most powerful thing in the world is not a car. It's not a plane. It's not a bomb. The most powerful thing in the world is the prayers of the righteous. They availeth much when the righteous pray. Pray. When the righteous person prays, heaven and earth collide. God's will becomes our will because that's what prayer is. Prayer is going to our Father with our requests, with our feelings, with our thoughts, with our passions, with our dreams, and, and voicing to Him our, the things that are on our hearts, but understanding at the end of it that we don't want God to bend to us, but we want God to give us the grace to bend to His will. Isn't that what prayer is? Jesus in Gethsemane is being real. This righteous man is praying as the weight of the world is now on his shoulder. He's feeling the coming agony, not necessarily or just the the pain of a nail going through him, but he's feeling the agony of being separated, separated from the father as he knew that the father could not look upon him because he would bear our sins. But he prays a real prayer, father, if there is any way possible. Let this cup pass. Huh. That's praying, praying your desires, praying your heart. But nevertheless, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will, Father. Nevertheless, Father, help me to receive the grace to not have you to bend to my desires, but help me to be into your desires. That's prayer. The prayer of the righteous. It availeth much. It has great importance. The righteous person is the person whose prayers are powerful. But James even gets more specific. There's a, a, a particular anointing. There's a particular call upon a specific Righteous person that availeth much. We're going to deal with this quickly and come back to it in a second. I want you to look up at verse 14. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. We are all God's righteous people. All of our prayers matter to God. God works through our prayers. They have great power. 
But we also want to know that he is identifying and setting apart the elders as, as people who have been given the anointing to pray in a, a very specific way. The elders are not talking about the elderly. This word elder throughout the New Testament is talking about those who have been set aside for the teaching and preaching ministry. Those who have been called by the church to, to represent them. The ministers of the church, the elders of the church are also the righteous people. Remember in Acts chapter 6, the church is in turmoil as the Hellenistic Jews, which are the Greek-speaking Jews, have a complaint and they're going to the apostles with their complaint. Their complaint is this. They feel like they're being slighted. They feel like the Hebrew-speaking Jews are receiving all the attention. They're receiving their food. The widows are receiving their food and their supplies quicker. The apostles respond. He says, this is not our primary purpose of ministry. It's not to settle disputes. He says, let us pick out seven men full of the Holy Ghost and power. Let them handle this issue. For we will go and do what we have been called to do. What is our call to do? Verse 6, chapter 4, our call is to preach and to pray. An elder's job, a minister's job is to constantly be before the Lord, preparing a word for God's people and to pray. So when James talks about the prayers of the righteous, he's talking about you. He's talking about the, the members of the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church. But he is also talking about a group of people, these elders, who have been set aside to pray. Now, a righteous person's prayer does not have great power if it is not prayed in a specific way. And what is the specific way that carries power? Verse 15, first five words. In order for our prayers to have great power, in order for our prayers to affect the things on this earth, our prayers must be prayers of faith. Do you see it? Our prayers must be prayers of faith. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. You see that? The prayer of faith. So a righteous person, a person who has been justified by God, the only way that our prayers will carry weight is if we are praying with faith. You catch that? Turn to James chapter 1 verse 5 quickly. James chapter 1 verse 5. This is not new. This is not new. James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask God who gives what? To all without reproach and it will what? Anybody lacks wisdom, he says, let him ask God and it will be given to him. But let him ask in what? In what? In what? Without what? Without doubting. For the one who doubts is like what? 
a wave in a sea, and he is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. It means he's, in our language today, he's two-faced. He stands before the Lord praying to God, but the moment he gets up from praying, he turns around and he forgets or acts like he can't trust God. You know, he starts saying, yeah, I prayed about it, but the Lord isn't going to do anything. Faith, 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 faith is what the Lord is looking for when we pray. He doesn't want us to just say prayers. He wants us to pray prayers. Many times we get caught up in just saying prayers. Saying, Lord, do this, 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 do this. We're not really thinking about what we're praying. He wants us to pray to him with faith, knowing that the Lord will answer our prayer. Faith is what activates our prayers. It's what pushes our prayers along. It's what pleases God. It's what moves God. Hebrews chapter 11, 6, without faith is what? It's impossible to please the Lord. Without faith, prayer of the righteous matters when we pray with faith. Faith. Throughout the Gospels we see this. Jesus is talking to someone, people who are desperate, people who are panting, people who have heard of his healing ministry and they they are blind and they hear that he's walking down the street. They begin to pant because they know that he's the only one that can heal them. He's the only one that can can take away their blemishes, that can help them to no longer be a leopard. And they're panting just like Psalm 42 and 1, as a deer pants for the water water brook, so my soul pants towards you. They're like that, that deer panting for him. Lord, save me. Lord, see me. Lord, hear me. Lord, deliver me. Lord, you can do it. They are worshiping him. And what happens? The Bible constantly says, and Jesus so there, faith. Jesus saw their faith. If we are going to move the heart of God, if we are going to experience comfort and peace in the midst of suffering, when we go to God, we have to go to God like Hebrews chapter 10, 10 verse 6 says, we have to go to the Lord boldly. With faith. What, what, what hinders us from having faith-filled prayers? What hinders us from going to the Lord in faith when we pray? I believe what hinders us from going to the Lord faithfully, constantly, consistently, and with faith, is perpetual brokenness. Catch this, follow me. Perpetual brokenness. The gospel, good news of Jesus Christ. In order to receive the good news of Jesus Christ, first must receive the bad news of the world. That Adam sinned. Say, wait a minute, Eve sinned first. Adam sinned. Eve did sin, but Adam is constantly the one who's held accountable because he was the head of the house. The man should have loved his wife enough to teach her the teachings of the Lord. He failed. 
moment Adam fell, all of the world was affected. All of the world became depraved. Sin became rampant. We were given a fallen nature, a nature that is inclined to please ourselves rather than God. From the time of Adam, every person that was born was born into a curse, the curse of Adam. A nature that wants to please itself, a hedonistic nature. But not only was Adam, not only was human, humans affected, but the world was affected. As a result of sin, sadness, sorrow, and separation spread to all God's creation. Paul says in the book of Romans that the earth is groaning. The earth is hurting as a result of the sin of Adam. Check this. We live surrounded by perpetual brokenness. Deacons, we live surrounded by fallen people and fallen things. Think about it. We turn on the news. It's filled with bad news. It's filled with horrific things. It's filled with young men who are attempting to blow up other human beings. It's filled with people raping other people. It's filled with people stealing and cursing and swearing. It's filled with misplaced sexuality. As a result, we constantly see brokenness. And then when we look in the mirror, we see brokenness. We know that the problem is not just other people, but we know that we are a gap ourselves. We know that we have lied. We know that we continue to fall short. And many of us look in our past and we see how other people have done us wrong. How other people have lied on us. How other people have mistreated us. And our trust Deplenishes. And we become cynical people. And when we meet people, when we meet preachers, we impose a cynical attitude right away because we know there's other preachers who have gained the trust of millions and who have fallen. When we see family members, we are quick to think about how they did not come through for us. Catch this. How does this affect our prayer life? It affects our prayer life because often we take that perpetual brokenness and we impute it on God. We go to God as if he is like one of us. We pray and say, God will not hear my prayers. As if God is not... The God of love. Go on a quick journey with me. Back to James chapter 1. Sister Debbie, I believe that James throughout this passage is teaching us a lot about God. As he's leading us up to prayer, he throughout this passage is showing us why we can trust God with prayer. That's what he's building to. 
Every passage, every chapter, we're being taught something about the character of God. Really quickly, we're going to just survey this very quickly. When we look at James chapter 1, and we look at verse 4, you can read it later. James talks about how we suffer, we go through times of suffering with a purpose and for a purpose. And that purpose is, is that we would become mature. That we will become complete as Christians, which teaches us something about God. And it teaches us that God is committed to our maturity. Romans 8, 29, that he is conforming us <laughs> to the image of Christ as we travel down and we look a little lower in James. And we look at verse 13 and we look at verse 17. James teaches us something about God. And it's this, he says, listen, when you sin, do not say that God is the one who is tempting you. For there is no evil in God. What he's teaching us, God is perfect. Then in verse 17, every good gift comes from the Lord. The Lord is perfect. He is a good God. In just one chapter, he taught us two things about God. God is committed to us. He's more committed to you than you are to yourself. He's also committed as well as be committed, he's also perfect. Then we travel a chapter over. Or actually, we could even go to verse 27. This is good. Verse 27, he talks about true religion is, is a person who visits the orphans and widows in their affliction. He teaches us about God, that God is not only perfect, but God is compassionate. God saves us in order that we would reach out and help people who are often broken and helpless. He teaches us that he saves us in order that we would be his hands and feet on earth. God is committed. God is perfect. God is compassionate. That's in one chapter. Then in chapter two, he's getting on the church. For treating people with money better than people who do not have money. He's getting on them really bad. He says, listen, this teaches us that God is not impartial. <laughs> that God is not partial. He's impartial. God is a fair God, a just God. That he doesn't care about how much money you have in your pocket. He cares about who you treasure in your heart. Church is the, should be the only organization, the only place, the, this, this organism that does not look down upon people for what they have or don't have, but who looks at all people as equal because they are made in the image of God. God is so good, isn't he? James is teaching us that, that he is committed to us, that he is trustworthy, that he is perfect, that he is compassionate and partial. Chapter 4, verse 5, James teaches us another reason we can trust the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 5, he teaches us that God is jealous. God is jealous. How in the world can I trust a jealous person? We can trust a jealous person because he is the only one who truly has a right to be jealous over all of his creation. Now, of course, a husband has a right to be jealous for his wife if his wife is not <laughs> being honest or in the face of another. 
God has a right to be jealous of his creation because he created us to worship him. Have you ever thought about that? God is jealous of you. He, he is jealous of you when you delight in someone other than him. Why is he jealous? Because he is the highest being. He's the highest and greatest being. It would be idolatry for him not to be jealous. James is teaching us a lot. He said, listen, you can trust God because he's committed. You can trust God because he's trustworthy. You can trust him because he's perfect, because he's compassionate, because he's impartial, because he's jealous over you. Zephaniah, he sings over you. He rejoices over you. He wants you. You can trust God and go to God with faith when you pray, also because he's just. That's what he's been establishing in chapter 5. He's a just God. The rich who hoard their finances, who, who hoard their money and mistreat their workers. The multi-million, 500, uh, Fortune 500 companies who make $100 billion a year and yet work their workers as slaves and only pays them $7 an hour and mistreats them. They one day will be judged. I want you to see this. We're almost done. I want you to see this. I want you to see what James is doing. James is not babbling. He's not just writing a random letter just so that we can just read it and go home. He wants us through his letter to see Christ, to see our Father, to see how much he cares for us. When you bend your knees to pray, when you are driving in your car to pray, do not impute the brokenness of others on God. Do not allow your cynicism and your experience with others to affect the way that you approach your father. Your father delights in you. Let me show you how much he delights in you. Let me show you how much he, he yearns for you. Let me show you how much he wants to hear from you. Verse 13, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders and let the elders of the church pray for him. He cares for you so much that he wants to hear from you. No matter what you're going through. He says, if you're suffering, I want to hear from you. If it's a sunny day, I want to hear from you. That's what he said. If you're cheerful, sing praise. Praising God. Singing songs is, is a form of prayer. Form of thanking God. If you're sick, we're going to deal with this word sick in a minute. If you're sick, he says, I want to hear from you. There's a difference here between the word suffering and sick. There's a, 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 a specific direction he's taking us there. He says, I want to hear from you. We should, we should marvel at the fact that this God who has been revealing himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through James's hand, wants to hear from us. We should, we should just be, be, be happy and excited and, and glad that he wants to constantly and specifically hear from us. Remember, he is perfect. A perfect God wants to hear from imperfect people. He is compassionate. I'm oftentimes not as compassionate as I need to be, but God still wants to hear from me throughout the day. 
oftentimes partial, but an impartial God wants to hear from you. Isn't that so? God of the universe. The one who spoke the sun and moon into existence, who hung the stars in the sky, who's keeping the world perfectly spinning on an axle, who continues to confound those who consider themselves wise, the one who is the perfect orchestrator of all things, wants to hear from us no matter what we're going through. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Why did the Holy Spirit have Paul write that? Because he wants to hear from you. He delights in hearing from you. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 15, chapter 5, I'm sorry, verse 17, pray without what? God not only wants us to pray prayers of faith, he wants us to pray prayers of faith faithfully. Because our prayers have great power. Heaven and earth collide. God graciously moves through our voice. Oh. Oh, may we. And we find delight in that truth that broken, fallen human beings are delighted by a perfect, whole, and eternal God. When we look to Christ in faith. Part of our problem is that when we impute this attitude of distrust on God, it often leads us to want to live as if we're grown-ups, as if we're independent. When cynicism comes in, pessimism comes in, when we find ourselves looking at everything and everyone with a critical attitude, we become... In our own hearts, independent. The more independent we are, the less we are praying. Catch that. The more independent you are, the less you are praying. What do I mean? That's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to pray less. And the way he gets us to pray less is by thinking that we are strong in ourselves, by thinking that we are grown, that we are independent. Eve fell into temptation when Satan cast doubt on a character of God. Told her that she's better off being independent, that God really doesn't want her to eat of the tree because he knows that she will become just like him. Satan puts thoughts of cynicism in our heart. He gets us to believe that our prayers does not matter and we become independent. God, this, catch this, the key to a prayer life, the key to praying to God is seeing yourself as his child. 
The key to an awesome prayer life. You can read all the books you want. I'm telling you, the key to an awesome prayer life is seeing yourself as helpless. John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus talks about how he is the vine and we are his branches. Then he says a, a statement. He says, and we can do nothing without him. Nothing. So he tells us to abide, to remain, to stay in him because we are helpless. This transformed my prayer life. Praying is hard. So many things to do. Consistently having a a prayer life is difficult. Let's be honest. I pray all the time. I know you do in the car. You're praying that that cop does not pull you over for running the red light. Yes, you do. But I mean an intentional prayer life will only be maintained. A person who sets large amounts of time out each day to pray, who makes prayer a priority, not just on the run, but daily, is a person who takes Christ's word serious and who understands that they are helpless. I can do nothing without you. When we see ourselves as children who can do absolutely nothing without Christ, we will go to him constantly and consistently. Martin Luther, a great reformer who was really used by God to to help Protestantism be delivered from uh, 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 shysty Catholicism. Martin Luther, who was one of the most busiest men in the 14th century, said this. He says, I must pray three to four hours a day if I am going to make it through. And it wasn't because he was trying to boast. It was because he really saw himself as helpless. Prayer of the righteous availeth much. It has great power. But if the righteous are going to pray, it's because we see ourselves as God relates to us. We see ourselves as children, not as grown-ups. If any man is going to come after me, he must deny himself. Suffer the little children to come unto me. We lose ourselves. We're helpless. James, in his text, says, if any of you are suffering, If any of you are cheerful, if any of you are sick, pray. What is he saying? He's saying no matter what situation you find yourself in, see yourself as helpless. You know, recently in the news, if you have been keeping up with it, you know about the WikiLeak. The United States has found themselves in trouble as sensitive material has been leaked or hacked into. A government database was hacked into by someone and over 7 million pages, they say up to possibly 7 million pages of sensitive documents about secrets and about the way that our government operates and the way that we relate to different nations has has been exposed. Right now, Hillary Clinton and the rest of the Foreign Relations crew is scrambling to salver our, our face before the nations. 
scrambling to clean up some stuff that other people would possibly find out in these documents. Our government is strong. Many of us see our government in the past as, as, as a government who, who keeps us safe, as a government who is secure. But our government is not God. When you go to the Lord in prayer, aren't you excited? Aren't you happy at the fact that you don't have to worry about your information being broadcast? You don't have to worry about God telling someone else what you have told him. It is secure. Two points that James encourages us us with that will help us to pray with faith and we're done. The first is this. God has ordained the prayers of the righteous. He has ordained our prayers to give comfort. Look, he has ordained our prayers to give comfort. Really quick. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Anointing, the, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The reason why God wants to hear from us constantly and consistently is because God has ordained our prayers to give us comfort. He has ordained our prayers to heal us, to make us whole. If you are feeling uncomfortable, pray. If you're feeling broken, pray. If you're feeling like you're a gap, like you're incomplete, pray. And when you pray, pray with faith. Know that the Lord will come for you. Thy rod and thy staff, thy, thy comfort me. Prayer and the word comforts us. Point number two. Boom, we got that one. Look at the text. Verse 14, he continues. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might, may be healed. The prayer of the righteous has great power. And as it is working. Second point. Second thing that should encourage us as God's righteous people to pray with faith faithfully is that God has ordained the prayers of the spiritually strong to restore the weak. God has ordained the prayers of the spiritually strong to restore the weak. James tells us to pray for comfort, but also to pray knowing that God has ordained our prayers for restoration. Now, this is important. The scripture says, is any among you sick? Now, traditionally, historically, We have viewed this verse as a physical sickness, okay? But contextually, I agree with John MacArthur, who's in the minority, but I'm going to prove why. I believe that James is focusing not on physical sickness here, but spiritual sickness. The Greek word for sick here is the word astenu, the word astenu. The word astenu, as you read, most Greek concordances is translated as weak or weary. Okay? Our translations here have put the word sick here because that has been what the early church saw as the word sick. And when we see the word sick, we automatically think of a physical ailment. I believe in the context of this book that James is speaking of us as not being 
necessarily physically sick. I believe that physical sickness can play a part, but James is speaking of us being spiritually sick. He's saying, if there are any among you who are spiritually sick, what do I mean by spiritually sick? Think about the context of James. Stay with me. We're almost over. Think about the context of James. The context of James, James is writing to Jews who are in dispersia. What does that mean? Jews who are scattered. They're no longer in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 7, verse 8. They're no longer in Palestine. They are in in more spread it out throughout the Mediterranean. Why are they spread it out? Because they are being persecuted. Why are they being persecuted? Because they are following Christ. And nobody likes them because they're following Christ. So throughout James, every verse in James needs to be thought of in that context. He's writing to people who are running for their lives. And some of the people in the church are weary. They're tired. They've given up hope. They are suffering. Is any one of you suffering? The word suffering in the Greek means greatly distressed. Is anyone among you sick? He uses a different word. And he means, is anyone among you weak? This word, astenu, this word that's sick here, which, which really carries the weight of being weak, is the same word that's used throughout Acts. It talks about how the church was being weak or weakened by persecution. The same word that's used in, in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 13. It's the same word that's used by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, when he says, as he's battling with a thorn in the flesh, he says, God responded and said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. James says, if there are any Christians among you who have spiritually given up, who are spiritually drained, who are spiritually dead because they're suffering on their job, they're suffering by other non-believers, their physical elements have discouraged them. He says, let them call for the men of God. Let them call for the elders. Why do they have to call? Because they need to humble themselves and admit that they have lost sight of the proper perspective of God. That he's committed to them, that he's perfect, that he's compassionate, that he's loving, that he's consistent, that he's faithful. He says, let them call for the elders of the church and let the elders of the church come and anoint them with oil. Does that mean anoint them with oil? We could take the Old Testament route and say that it's a ceremonial anointing, Leviticus chapter 14, verse 18. The priests would anoint those who are weak or those who have been restored to the community. I don't think that's what he's talking about. You could take a physical perspective and say that he is here talking about a physical sickness and that he's talking about uh, getting olive oil as has been the tradition. You get the olive oil and he's telling them to massage those who are sick, anoint them with oil, pray for them, massage their sickness. It's possible. I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's talking about a more, a mixture, a more, a metaphorical sense. He's saying, let us grab this, this oil and let us pour this oil upon these people. This oil being signifying the, the Holy Spirit, the power of God. 
Let us, let us pour, let the elders pour it upon them. And our faith is not in the oil, our faith is in the prayer. Let us pour it upon them as a symbol that we trust in God's power and God's anointing and let them pray fervently. There are people who we know who have given up on God, who once was walking with God, people like demons who has turned their back from the Lord, who are spiritually weak, who stay home Sunday after Sunday. God is saying that we need to pray for them. And we need to pray that they would call upon the ministers of the, of the church, that they would allow the ministers of the church to come and to pray for them. It's interesting, he didn't say counsel, he said pray. Pray for them. Look at the text. It says, and they might be healed. <laughs> no. It says, and they will be healed. The person who is weary, the person who is discouraged, the person who has allowed the trials of life to crush their faith, the person who humbles themselves and who calls for the ministers of the church to come and to restore them, that person who has faith in the power of the church and the power of the men of God that God has ordained of the church, that person will be healed. As they confess their sin of unbelief, God will restore them. Not he might. When we humble ourselves, when we find ourselves weak, when we find ourselves having given up, when we find ourselves desperate and feeling like God is far away, May we remember that God has ordained prayer for us personally. We can pray and we can, we can have comfort. But if we are to the point where we don't have faith in prayer, we ought to call the elders of the church. God will use their prayers to strengthen us. That's what the church is. Church is a body. Many times we don't call for the help of people who are strong because we're too embarrassed to admit our weakness. Or we think that we're going to be a burden. Ephesians chapter 6 says that, it, that we're supposed to be a burden. It says that we ought to bear one another burdens. When we pray together, when we confess our sins to one another, God heals us. He restores us. When we sit down with a brother or sister and admit that we are failing and as a result of our personal failure to fight sin, that we are now faithless when we pray. And when that brother or sister prays with us, God delivers us. He heals us because he hears the prayers of the righteous. Go home and read the last two verses. Of James. James ends abruptly, but he ends talking about the same thing about how we as Christians, how we are called to restore those who have left the fellowship. It's our job as individual members of the body of Christ to hold one another accountable, to go and to restore. Last verse, he illustrates this perfectly. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now listen, one of the reasons why I really prayed through this text and thought through this text extremely hard when it came to the word sick was because of this illustration. James, out of nowhere, I believe that if he was mainly talking about a physical ailment, I believe that we are to go and to pray for the sick and get that God can heal them. If he doesn't heal them physically now, that he will ultimately heal them if they are his in, in eternity. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that we ought to take some oil to the hospital. I believe that we ought to go into some members' houses and, and that they should call us and that we should, we should touch and agree. I've seen God heal some people right in here from cancer. But I believe that the thrust of this is talking about being spiritually weak because the example that he gives of Elijah, this is not an example of a physical healing taking place. This is an example of a, of a national weakness. A, a nation was weak because no rain was coming. He gives an illustration. He says, we, are, we were given the nature just like Elijah. Elijah's a man just like us. And when Elijah prayed that the Lord would shut up the heavens, and then he prayed again three and a half years later that the Lord would open up the windows of heaven, God heard his prayer, and he fed the earth with rain. God is saying, when you pray, know that I'm not impartial. Just as I heard Elijah's prayers, I will hear yours. When you are weak, I will allow the rain of my spirit to strengthen you. When a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ is weak, I will allow you to experience a, a fresh dew. I will lead you in green pastures. I will restore your soul. Close talking about Ashley, open talking about Ashley and Kim, about how they had prayed fervently that Kim would no longer be mute. But at that point in the story of the book, Kim was mute. She couldn't speak. Well, God healed Kim, not in a way that we would expect. He didn't open her mouth and allow her to speak. But God allowed them at the time to find new technology that allowed her to be able to push a button and the word came from the machine. God does not always deliver us from our thorns on this side of heaven. Sometimes he answers our prayers in ways that we could have never imagined. But I tell you this, the greatest tragedy is not unanswered prayers. The greatest tragedy is unoffered prayers. God always answers our prayers, even if it's a no. He always answers our prayers, even if it's a later. He will always answer our prayers. He will even tell us to wait. The greatest tragedy is not unanswered prayers, Ashley. It's not unanswered prayers, Jamal. The greatest tragedy is unoffered prayers. James said in James chapter 4, 
You have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask in vain that you will spend it upon your hedonistic passions. There's a medium. God answers our prayers when we pray. Honest from our hearts. Lord, let your will be done. Revelation chapter 21. We read. John sang these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear in their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. Are you suffering? Are you praying? God will answer your prayer. He will deliver you. He will give you grace. He will give you peace. And one day he will deliver you from all pain, from all suffering. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we are in desperate need of you to constantly remind us that without you, we can do nothing. As we wake up in the morning, may you remind us, Father, that if we don't pray, if we don't ask you desperately to deliver us from temptation, to protect our mind as people in our job, tap on our nerves, that we will fail the test that you have put in front of us. Father, help us to see ourselves as helpless children when we approach you, but also to see ourselves as those who are more than conquerors, to have a proper perspective of those who are in desperate need of you, but as those who have been given the strength of Christ and that through Christ we can do all things. Help us, Father God, to see that our hearts were made to be a prayer factory. Our hearts were made to constantly be in communication with you. Help us to see that you delight not only in our times that we set apart to pray, long concentrated periods of prayer, but help us, Father God, to see that you delight in simple prayers. Prayers that simply have your son name. We marvel at the fact, Father God, that when we are too weak to know what to pray, when we are too weak, Father God, to know how to pray, that your spirit prays for us, calls us to moan deeply, but but you hear those prayers and, and Christ corrects those prayers and he intercedes for us. Thank you for our prayer partner, Christ never fails at praying. In Jesus' name, amen.